Well, if you compiled a list of all the great men and women of the Bible, one who would unquestionably have to sit somewhere at the top of that list would be King David. His accomplishments were unequaled. Alone, as a boy, probably a young teenager or maybe even younger, he single-handedly killed lions and bears whenever one would come along and try to steal one of the sheep that he was tending for his father. In those same early years of his life, he was anointed the future king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. As a young man in his middle teen years at best, he single-handedly killed Goliath, a giant warrior of the Philistines, while the rest of the Israelite army, battle-hardened soldiers, cowered in fear. As a young warrior, he was put in charge of King Saul's armies and experienced success against their enemies unlike anyone else in the kingdom, including King Saul himself, a notable uh, accomplished warrior. David was anointed king over Judah in 2 Samuel 2 and king over Israel at 30 years of age in 2 Samuel 5. And as a king, David lived in a palace built on the ruins of the Jebusite citadel that uh, he had conquered, a palace that overlooked the city of Jerusalem, where he was blessed by God with everything a man could ever possibly want. David was an accomplished musician and writer. He was a fierce warrior. He was a successful king. He was revered by his own people, loved and immeasurably blessed by God, even described as a man after God's own heart in Acts 13, 22. Without question, David lived a life like no other. And so for a man like David... To describe something in his own life as being too wonderful for me, which I'm, he did. I'm quoting him in Psalm 139. Right? I mean, whatever, whatever it was that was too wonderful for David must have been truly extraordinary. right? Because he had everything he could ever dream of. So what could possibly be too wonderful for a man like David? Well, he answers that question in verse 6 of the psalm, and believe it or not, he says it's knowledge. But not just any knowledge, not just the uh, accumulation of information and facts over his remarkable life. No, the knowledge that is too wonderful for David to be able to even fully grasp is the knowledge that his entire life, the ups and the downs, the easy parts and the hard parts, the good days and the bad days, the victories and the defeats, the great accomplishments and the gut-wrenching losses, every single day of David's life was planned out by God long before David was even born. And in that knowledge, David is rocked to his core. Because not only does that knowledge reveal to David the unimaginable depth of God's love for him, but it also means as accomplished as David was, ultimately he knew that he could not take the credit for even one of those glorious days of his life apart from God. And so it is with a profound sense of awestruck wonder that David declares in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You see, standing in the wilderness herding sheep as a boy, I'm sure David had dreams for his future like every child does, but never could he have ever imagined the life that God had actually ordained for him before the foundations of the earth. And here's why 
that same knowledge should rock you to your core today. Because in his letter to the church at Ephesus, 1100 years after King David was dead and buried, the apostle Paul wrote to Christians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. Do you understand the very same knowledge that brought David to his knees in awe and wonder over its implications for his own life then that applies every bit as to your life today, as much as it did to David. And that matters because some of you are facing tremendous uncertainty in your lives. Listen to me. According to David, none of your uncertainty makes God any less certain. God said to the prophet Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Jeremiah 1.5 See, God knew that you would be facing exactly what you're facing today before you ever existed. He's surprised by nothing. There's no uncertainty in him. And I understand sometimes you doubt when God, uh, when life seems uncertain, it's easy to doubt God at those times. Listen, none of your faithlessness makes God any less faithful. He says over and over again in scripture that he will never leave us or forsake us, including Hebrews 13, 5. And and believe me, I know (laughs) when life seems uncertain and doubts begin to creep their way into your heart and mind, it's easy to begin feeling a bit lost as if you no longer are sure about a definitive direction for your life, or it makes it easy to want to give up sometimes. Let me just tell you, none of your lack of determination makes God any less determined to finish what he started in you. The Apostle Paul said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6, you see, none of, of our inadequacies make God any less adequate to carry out his good plan for your life. No matter how many good days or bad days you have, no matter how many victories or how many defeats you experience, no matter what you ever achieve or how much you may ever lose, no matter how difficult or confusing or challenging your circumstances may be today, God knows it all. He's with you through it all and he has a plan for your life well beyond it all. This is the very knowledge that David was grappling with. In Psalm 139, when he says such knowledge is too wonderful for me, the word wonderful is the ancient Hebrew word pelai, which was an extremely rare word. In fact, it only appears twice in all of biblical scripture here in Psalm 139. And again, in Judges 13, 18, it means secret. David wasn't just praising God for how wonderful his knowledge is, as wonderful as it is, nor was he celebrating the fact that God was omniscient, all-knowing, even though God is certainly omniscient. No, David was saying that he's unable to grasp the sheer mystery of God's complete and utter sovereignty over every aspect of David's existence. In fact, the NET translation of the Bible probably captures the essence of this verse a lot more closely to its original intent when it says, instead of saying, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain it. The NET reads, your knowledge is beyond my comprehension. It is so far beyond me, I'm unable to fathom it. David was in complete awe of the command that God had over every single day of his life, which couldn't be any more relevant for us today because if we were half as impressed with God's sovereignty over our lives as David was, 
we wouldn't be nearly as impressed by the troubling circumstances that we sometimes have to face in this life. And so today, we're going to look at this 139th Psalm, specifically the first 16 verses, and reflect a bit on the knowledge that God has had a plan in place. Listen, God has had a plan in place for your life, a plan in place for your spouse's life, a plan in place for your children's lives, a plan in place for all of our lives together, a plan for this church long before the foundations of the earth. We worked through this passage a few years ago, three or four years ago, but I, I felt impressed through a prayer this week that it was time to revisit this today because if you will allow yourself to wrestle with that knowledge that shook David to his core, if you will wrestle with it the way that he did, then listen, no matter what you may be facing in your life right now, it will radically transform your perspective and attitude and approach not only to your current circumstances but to the rest of your life as well. So let's turn there together to Psalm 139, uh, where the, the superscription, the heading, says to the choir master, a psalm of David. The word psalm in Hebrew, mizmor, it refers to a song that was usually accompanied by a musical instrument, and it's addressed to the choir master. Interestingly, there are scholars who believe that is the Lord God himself, while others say it was probably a worship leader uh, or leader of choirs or musicians in David's time such as Haman, the singer, or Asaph, who are both described in 1 Chronicles. Either way, uh, this is clearly a very deeply personal and intimate song, and it was most likely written uh, in a very difficult season of David's life, as we'll see. Let's begin by reading then Psalm 139, the first six verses. O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. <clears throat> you know, at a, at a cursory reading, this psalm, particularly the first 18 verses or so, uh, may seem to be nothing more than a song of praise written by a man who had everything except the care in the world, when actually it is as much a song of lament as it is a song of praise because it was written by a king who at the time was beset by enemies and personal failure, which we'll look at more in a moment. But first, he makes it clear that not one single aspect of his life, good or bad, is outside of God's awareness or understanding. He says, you've searched me and known me. You discern my thoughts from afar. You're acquainted with all my ways, not just my good ways, or just my bad ways, all my ways. In other words, you know absolutely everything there is to know about me. In fact, you know more about me than I know about myself. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You see, God knows you better than you know yourself, which is the point David's trying to make here, even though we cannot fully grasp it. He says, God knows every one of your days. He knows you. There isn't one moment of your life that escapes God. He knows everything you do, everything you think, and everything you say even before you know what you're going to do or think or say. And so he says in verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And this is where it gets interesting because it sounds really nice, except that every time the idea of being hemmed in is used in scripture, it almost always carries with it a negative 
connotation. The word ham in the Hebrew is the word sore. It means to bind up or confine. And of course, nobody wants to be bound up or confined. And yet, because God knows what we're going to do and think and say even before we do, there are times in our lives and what we need more than anything is to be confined, restricted, to keep us from making a colossal mistake in our lives. You see, at times being hemmed in may not be comfortable, but it is precisely what we need. And so when necessary, David says that God hems you in behind and before and lays his hand upon you, which of course can be protection uh, from our enemies. It can also be protection from ourselves. Because sometimes what we want is far from what we need. Sometimes what we desire the most is what will actually benefit us the least. In fact, sometimes what we think is best would turn out to be the very worst if it wasn't for God hemming us in. Certainly David was a living example of what happens when we get what we want even when it's not what we need. As he took, of course, what he wanted from a married woman which brought death upon his own household and her household as well. You understand, sometimes not getting what we want is the very best thing for us. And so when you pray and ask God for something that you desperately want, don't assume that he's ignoring you when you don't get it. It may simply be that he's laying his hand upon you, that he's hemming you in to keep you from something that would not be good for you. Okay, when, when you apply uh, for that job and you don't get it, don't assume that God has decided you don't deserve that job that you really want. Because it may simply be that he's hemmed you in to keep you from something harmful. When a relationship doesn't work out the way you want it to, don't get discouraged to the point of despair. It may well be that God is saving you for something better. And listen, uh, we all know it's not that God always keeps us from making mistakes, right? Obviously, he allows us to fall and falter. Uh, he allows us to mess up and sin. And yet, by his grace and mercy, he forgives us and allows us to learn from those mistakes. But look, at the same time, if we were actually granted everything that we ever asked for in prayer, everything that we ever pursued in this life, we would probably all be in a lot of trouble today. And so God, in his infinite understanding, not only of us, but of what we need every single day of our lives, sometimes he'll hem us in. He will confine us and lay his hand upon us, not to punish us, but to protect us, even sometimes from ourselves, even when we don't understand why. Which is why David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. In other words, I cannot presume to understand why God does all that he does. It is beyond my limited understanding. So I choose to trust him in the knowledge that what he knows is sometimes too wonderful for me. You see, David is awestruck by the sovereignty of God over every day of his life. And if we could just get to that same place. The place where we're more impressed with the certainty of God over our circumstances than we are with the uncertainty of those circumstances themselves. Our perspective and attitude and approach to those circumstances would drastically change. And that's when you become steady in the storms of life. It's not easy to do. That's when you have confidence even in the midst of confusion. That's when you stay the course following Christ even when it becomes costly to do so because even though you don't understand all that he does you fully understand that he's in control 
And that wonderful knowledge, even when that's all that you have to go with, that's enough. It certainly was for David. Let's keep reading verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So not only is the knowledge that God knows David better than he knows himself, not only is that knowledge too wonderful for David to grasp, but it is also inescapable. He says, there's nowhere I can go and be separated from your presence. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the realm of the dead, the underworld. He says, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, it's the Hebrew word shakar, it refers to the morning light rising in the farthest point to the east and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. That's the Hebrew word yam. It's a reference to the far end of the Mediterranean world west of Israel. It's the word the local people used to refer to something the farthest west you could go. In other words, from the heavens above to Sheol below, from the farthest point east to the farthest point west on this earth, there is nowhere I can go to escape your presence, for no matter where I am, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You see, not only does God know you every one of your days, but God is with you every one of your days. Unless we think that's only uh, for David, and maybe a few other great men and women of the Bible, Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said to his followers, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The really great news about that statement by Jesus is the fact that the end of the age hasn't come yet, which means that promise applies to all of us today and tomorrow and every day after until he returns, which also brings up an important point, because when Jesus made that statement, he knew that he was about to leave this earth. This was just before he ascended to heaven in Acts 1. So why would you tell your followers that you will always be with them right before you leave them? Well, it's because of another promise that he made just before he left, the promise of his Holy Spirit who would dwell inside all those who come to Christ by grace through faith. You see, it's the Holy Spirit who fulfills those five words, I am with you always. It's the Holy Spirit who we cannot escape no matter where we go. And it is the Holy Spirit who leads us and holds us no matter how dark our days may become at times in our lives. And listen, the reason the presence of the Holy Spirit is inescapable for the Christian is because he dwells, he lives inside of us. How much time do you spend thinking about that each day? The Spirit of the living God, if you're a believer and follower of Christ, is living inside of you. Do you understand what that means? No matter where you go, you are in the presence of the Holy Spirit because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are where he lives. That's why we don't have to coax him to show up when we worship. That's why we don't have to plead with him to enter into our times of prayer. <clears throat> that's why we can know with great confidence that he is always, always, always with us. Because if you're a Christian, then wherever you are, wherever you are, that's where the presence of God is. You carry him with you, in you, 
every place you go. That's why we walk in power. That's why Jesus was able to say, I'm with you always. And so for followers of Christ, those five words are the difference between hopelessness and hope. Those five words are the difference between walking away and pressing on, between wondering if something is even possible and knowing that it is certain. Those five words are the difference between risking nothing and risking everything, between fear and courage, between hate and love, between dread for tomorrow and great joy in the journey, even in our darkest of days. I am with you always. That knowledge is too wonderful for me. In fact, I cannot express to you how much those five words have meant to me personally. At times in my own life, those five words have moved me from giving up to going forward, from hurt to healing, from fear to courage, from carelessness to compassion, from complacency to commitment, from great uncertainty to great faith. Those five words define what kind of men and women we become, how we respond to people and situations throughout life, how we hold up when everything and everyone around us seems to be falling apart. It's the, it's the truth of those five words that affords us the supernatural ability to bear all things, things that are unbearable to others. The Apostle Paul said, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, 1 Corinthians 13, 7 and 8. And yet it is only because of the Spirit of Christ who is with us always. It's only because of him that we have the capacity to love and believe and hope and endure all things even in times of great testing. In fact, those five words are the difference between followers of Jesus Christ and followers of everything else. Because we have the spirit of the living God living inside of us, which means he's always with you. Which honestly, if you, if you actually stop and push everything else away and take time to think about that, it's almost too much for us to comprehend. It's too wonderful. But like David, I'll take it every time, even though I can't fully grasp it. Let's keep reading. We'll finish the story today with verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So David continues the theme of mystery, even when it comes to God's work in creating us. He says, for you were formed, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. If you read that in the original Hebrew, in the ancient language, first of all, there's no conjunction. The word and is not there between the words fearfully and wonderfully. And the verb made is also not there. So the direct translation from the Hebrew actually reads like this. For I am fearfully wonderful. Look at yourself in the mirror and say that a few times. I am fearfully wonderful. And when you consider that in the light of the next verse, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. 
intricately woven in the depths of the earth. It's a metaphor, of course, for the mother's womb. When you put all of that together, the idea that I am fearfully wonderful, made in secret, intricately woven together in my mother's womb, it becomes clear David is not only writing about the quality of God's workmanship, but also very much the mystery of human creation itself. And yet as much of a profound and truly unknowable mystery that that is for David, he says of God, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. My favorite passage in all of scripture. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. You see, the greatest mystery to us, what's going to happen tomorrow, right? The greatest mystery to us is no mystery to God. Because he worked out every single uh, one of our days while we were being knit together in secret. This is what David is trying to tell us, even though it's too wonderful for us to grasp. God has a plan for every one of your days. And David knew it. Because he'd lived out that mystery in his own life. As a shepherd boy in the fields, David had dreams. He had aspirations to do great things with his life as we all do. Right? I mean, every one of us wants our life to count for something big, something meaningful, something that makes a difference in the world. But never could David have imagined the life that God had actually planned for him. Was it an easy life? <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, he spent a significant portion of it being hunted by a very important people who wanted to kill him. David's life was far from easy. He often had to abandon what was comfortable, what was prosperous, what he wanted, what was immediately gratifying in order to pursue God's plan for his life, not knowing what tomorrow held for him. You understand that this is antithetical to what our culture is constantly shoving down our throats today. The conviction that ultimate fulfillment is realized through consumption. By serving ourselves rather than God and others. And Christians buy into that until eventually our vision for the future changes. Our expectations shrink. Our enthusiasm for pursuing our God-given dreams begin to wane until the passion we once had for the future is gone. And we settle into a life that seems necessary, inevitable, responsible. A life that meets other people's expectations for us far more than it does our own. And before long, life becomes all about what we can get rather than what we can give. Which, by the way, is a death sentence to living a life of true purpose and fulfillment. Because the constant pursuit of self ultimately produces self-loathing. I don't know if you know that. A constant pursuit of self Ultimately, that produces self-loathing, a dissatisfaction with life, deep-seated feelings of unfulfillment. The idea that we can consume our way to satisfaction and fulfillment is a hollow promise. It is a soulless pursuit that leaves people broken and dysfunctional and burned out and disillusioned with their lives. Yet that's exactly what our culture is trying to sell us. The idea that being fulfilled means having enough to ensure that there's never any want in our lives. That somehow, it's the idea that somehow it is desirable to never lack anything. It's funny, isn't it? We think that way. 
that it's a good thing to never lack. That we're being reckless when we intentionally risk our comfort and security and the comfort and security of our families to realize the dreams that God has put in us. That it's negligent to not earn as much as possible or amass as much as we can in this life. That somehow we are less caring toward our loved ones if we intentionally do anything that may put our safety or their safety at risk. But you know what? I think inherently we know that that's all wrong. I think we know deep down that God created us for something bigger than ourselves, something bigger than what we've settled for and try to convince ourselves is right. Because look, we willingly and often enthusiastically not only applaud, but financially support missionaries with small children who move into extremely dangerous parts of the world where they can be killed just for sharing the gospel. Now, why would we fund people's unimaginable irresponsibility if we really believe that putting your family at risk for the sake of God's calling on your life was unimaginably irresponsible? We wouldn't do that. Yet we write books and make movies about those who become martyrs as they live out their purpose to the fullest. We celebrate people who turn down comfortable and safe lives in order to work in the slums of the world, giving their entire lives to helping the most vulnerable people among us. We call those people heroes, giants of the faith, because of the sacrifices they make and the results that we see from their lives. Because I think deep down we know that living with that kind of abandon for God is the most most fulfilling life that we could ever live even though so many of us are unwilling to actually live that way and so we make excuses for ourselves because we believe that we don't have the background or the skills or the qualifications to achieve the extraordinary for God and so we settle for ordinary necessary inevitable responsible And our culture has convinced us that's the right way to feel. And in the process, we allow our dreams to die and our passion with them and we turn our focus inward because even though we've settled for less than God's perfect plan for us, we still want to feel fulfilled. We still long to experience satisfaction with our lives and so if we're not willing to pursue God's plan to that end with all of the risk and uncertainty and discomfort that living that way can produce in us at times, if we're not willing to live that way, then maybe we can find fulfillment some other way. Maybe we can find it in self-pursuit, but I'm telling you, self-pursuit is a death sentence for your God-given dreams. I know it, I know it firsthand. I pursued the American dream for my life instead of God's plan for my life for many, many years. And through that, I had accumulated many things that I thought would make me happy. And I was miserable. So one day we sold, gave away, and walked away from most everything we owned. A career, big income, belongings, friends, family. <laughs> Why would we do that? Well, it was to pursue God's plan for our lives for once. And out of that, a church was born. And yet, uh, this church didn't start the day after that decision. No, it has been a journey through many, sometimes very difficult years of trusting God for a tomorrow that we could not see. But it all started by giving up what we owned and moving 5,000 miles away 
and starting with almost nothing, surrounded by complete strangers doing something we'd never done before in our lives. It was downright frightening. It was unpredictable. It was very uncertain at times. To some, it was irresponsible. Believe me, they let me know. But that's what following God's plan looked like for us. Now listen, it may not look that way for you. But whatever it is for you, listen, it is worth it. It's worth it. Whatever it costs you, it is worth it. Whatever sacrifices you have to make to follow God's plan for your life, I'm telling you, it is worth it. Because there is no other way to become everything he's created you to become. So let me ask you, are you willing to chuck everything that you have and do something else if that's what he's calling you to do? Are you willing to risk your own safety and security and comfort to follow God's plan for your life if that's what his plan requires? Are you willing to put other people before yourself even if it costs you everything you have if that is his plan for your life? Or... Are you so averse to risk, to sacrifice, to focusing more on him and others than yourself that your life has become largely impotent in terms of what you're actually able to accomplish for Christ and all that he's put inside of you? And only you can answer that. But look, that's the only place you're ever going to find true fulfillment when your life is focused on God's plan, no matter what it costs you. That's when your life becomes extraordinary, exceptional, that's when other people's lives are literally changed because of the life that you are living. When we abandon the self-focused life of constant consumption and follow the extraordinary plan of God that he, by the way, wrote out in his book for you while you were being knit together in your mother's womb. And I'm just telling you, you can't even imagine that life in fact, it's too wonderful for you to fully comprehend it. The question is, are you willing to pursue it as he reveals it to you, whatever it costs? Germany Kent once said, the only way you're going to reach places you've never gone is if you trust God's direction to do things you've never done. You see, if we knew everything that God had planned for us for the rest of our lives, we wouldn't believe it, first of all, because it's too wonderful to grasp it all at once. We couldn't handle it, probably run the other way. So quite often he only reveals the next step in his plan. With each new step that we take, he reveals the next step after that. It's maddening, I know. Drives me crazy. Come on, God. But that's what he does so often in our lives. It's okay. It's okay to be a bit uncertain. We're so trained and programmed from childhood. The opposite direction. It's okay to be uncertain at times. As long as you understand that your uncertainty doesn't make God's plan for you any less certain. It's okay to wrestle with your faith at times when it comes to God's plan for your life as long as you understand that your faithlessness doesn't make God any less faithful in carrying out that plan in your life. It's okay for your determination to wane at times as long as you understand that God is no less determined to see his plan through for your life all the way to the end. Because no matter how difficult 
or costly or uncertain following God's plan for your life may seem to be. God knows it all. He is with you through it all. And he has a plan to guide you along the way every single step of the way. Now you tell me, what could be more wonderful than that? Let's pray.